Hi, it's Laura Norkin, deputy editor at InStyle.com. Ladies First with Laura Brown is on a brief hiatus, but we wanted to reshare an episode from earlier in the season. Here's Laura Brown's conversation with Ellen Pompeo. Enjoy! I have a lot of privilege, so that has allowed me to stand up and say what I think and what I feel because I have a a certain level of power. There's something that just hits you when you turn 50 where you literally don't give a fuck. Welcome to Ladies First with Laura Brown. I'm Laura Brown, editor-in-chief of InStar Magazine, and each week I'm talking to a legendary lady about what she does, how she does it, and what we can learn from her. Ellen Pompeo plays a doctor on TV, but in real life, she could drive the Straight Talk Express. Talk about a woman who practices what she preaches. Hey, mate. Thanks for being on Ladies First. Oh, my goodness. My pleasure. And you know, Ladies First is uh, about ladies that are first in what they do. Ooh. Is that what it's about? And you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not very formal. Have you noticed? I think when we first met, and I'll just tell, obviously, I have the impression of you from the telly and being on the Grey's Anatomy and other great movies and films, but... We're at the Instel Awards a few years ago, and someone's doing a speech, and it's quite, I think it's Taika Watiti, is doing a speech to Kate Blanche, and it's very Aussie, like the speech was very Aussie humour, and just very specific, and I was like, you know, laughing my head off. There's a lot of people just sitting there like, oh, and then to the left of me, I hear this cackle, a cackle. <laughs> and then like another one, <laughs> and everything, and I look around, and who is it? It's Pompeo, mm-hmm. cackler in chief. People are all always so sort of stiff at those things. I find, and if we're not going to have fun, why do we go to them? It's all so stiff and proper. And I was like, oh, this is someone who's completely in her bones, and even more so in the past few years when you've just been so frank about your role with Grey's Anatomy, what you're paid, what you what you're worth standing up for yourself and being pragmatic, which so many women have learned so much from. Were you always a straight talker? I think so. You know, a Boston upbringing, I've learned to sort of straight talk in a a maybe less aggressive style. I think I've always sort of spoke my mind, but but in a, a more rough around the edges kind of a way. So I've learned to sort of be a little bit more diplomatic about the way I speak out about things now. How did you learn that? You're, yeah, you're definitely diplomatic about it, but you, you're much more assertive than so many other people and so much more from, from the heart than so many other people. Right. Well, I have a lot of privilege, right? So that has allowed me to stand up and sort of say what I think and what I feel because I have a, a certain level of power. So I feel protected to do that. I wasn't always. And then I think there's something that just hits you when you turn 50, where you literally don't give a fuck. Tell me about waking up on your 50th birthday. You just, you wake up, turn over to Chris and your kids are like, I didn't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just honestly can't believe you're like, wait, what is that number? What? 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 How did that happen? And so many women have said this, so this is certainly nothing new, but we spend so much of our youth. I think all the, your, your teens, you don't know what's happening. Your 20s, you spend your whole 20s criticizing yourself, comparing yourself to other women, thinking you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not tall enough. And then your 30s, you're sort of still doing that a little bit and figuring it out. And then the 40s, I think you really start to feel yourself. And right when you start feeling yourself in your 40s, in the 50s, you're like, oh my goodness, don't go away. Don't leave me. 
really quite cruel, actually, when you think about it. Youth is wasted on the young. And just when you get your shit together, you're like, oh, I got it. My face went down, though. It's so backwards because you're able to procreate and create life when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, when you don't know anything and shouldn't even be allowed to take care of yourself, let alone biologically, you can give birth to another human. And then once you figure it out and you actually know how to raise a human, it's over. I talk about that exactly, exactly like that when you are emotionally, mentally, emotionally, financially, whatever it is, mature enough to want to bring a child into the universe, your body goes, Meh. I guess we're just going to sit here with our freaking wisdom. Yeah. What have you learned? I mean, since you turned 50. No, I don't learn anything. <laughs> I just sit around and hear myself talk all day. No, no. I mean, yeah, you know, hopefully we learn every single day. I don't know what the adjective is, but I don't think women are, there's all this talk about women empowerment and women supporting women. And I don't necessarily find that to be so true. I think we pick and choose who we want to support. And there's there's a lot of sort of hoopla around it, but I, I don't necessarily think other women support other strong women. I think there's still a patriarchy that's sort of baked into us that the minute a woman has a strong voice, says her opinion, it's very outspoken. You know, all of a sudden we're sort of could be labeled, Agro. you know, yeah, bullies, angry, whatever, bossy, all of those things that men have been telling us we are for years, which is why we don't speak out when we're young. Once we finally do learn to speak out, then we get it from women. It's really interesting. I actually don't really care for the word empowerment. I, I think it's a little patronizing. I think it's a bit like, oh, here's Ellen. Let's empower Ellen. I, I believe that each woman has power in her, whether or not it's, it's easy for her to see. But what, what do you think about that? Because I think it is it becomes trite and bandied around. It's like, here's our blob of ladies. Here's our women's conference. Here's our, we're going to empower that. And it doesn't, it sort of loses its meaning. Like, what does that word mean to you? What does, it having, what does power mean to you? I don't know what empowerment means to me. I haven't thought enough about it. But the words like diversity and inclusion as we hear those words a lot, and it's like, who's doing the including? Right. Like, oh, so us white people are going to start to include others? How nice of us. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It comes with an air of, like, benevolence. Like, oh, we open the door to you. Yeah. That's the same thing. I think it's patronizing as well. And that's one of the things I so admire about you. You've never sat there with your tag words or whatever word is floating through the media at the time or what is sanctioned or what is hashtagged. You've just lived it. So what's it like when you see these kind of things float through? Do you just sort of go, can you just do it? I do, but I also try to come from a place of non-judgment, you know, because I think that people don't know what they don't know. So I try first not to judge and I try to have compassion and empathy and think that people are doing the best they can. <laughs> lurching along. So speaking of doing the best you can, how was COVID for you guys at home? You, Chris, and your three kitties. Yeah, it was it was okay. Chris and I are pretty lucky. Like we have a good thing and we're great friends and we figured out like a schedule. It took us a few weeks to figure that schedule out. 
But, you know, we have a yard and we have a pool. And here in Los Angeles, we have nice weather. There's a lot of people who had it much harder than than we did. So I don't really feel comfortable sort of complaining about it, you know. It's more just about being, you know, being all together in one place. Yeah, or, you know it was what I mean? nice. What, it you was know. fun, you know, to have the kids home and have an excuse to eat chocolate cake every day and make chocolate cake every day. It was hard, though, keeping the news off and keeping the kids away from it. And it was definitely an interesting social experiment, to say the least. Yeah, what was your social experiment? It was just like not going outside. It was really wild. And then I remember the first moment actually like really going out was the day after the election. After it was finally called, which was seems like it was like a months long thing. <laughs> Years. But I went to the flower shop in West Hollywood and there was just like everybody was out in their cars and beeping their horns and like it was it was literally like a pride parade on that day. Do you feel a, a sort of mental lag coming out of this? Like do you feel sort of ready to resume as you did? I don't know that any of us should resume as we did. Look at the impact on the environment that COVID had. There were dolphins swimming in the East River. That was one of the most remarkable things to happen, really looking at our impact on the planet. Should we go back to the way we were? We I mean, were... I'm going to get my Hummer and just, like, drive around <laughs> Manhattan. You're not going to do that? <laughs> no. No. So tell me about so Grey's Anatomy. You finished shooting 17 seasons. So and what I'm not sure if all the, the listeners know your your shooting time is is a, is the majority has been the majority of the year really right? Is it nine nine ish months or it has? We started in September. I think we normally start in the last week of July. Usually 60 people will come on set and everybody does their part, gets the set ready to shoot, and then the actors come in and we shoot and. With COVID, there's only a certain amount of people allowed in the room at a time. So it takes twice as long to set up, so twice as long to shoot. So we sort of filmed from September to April, but only did, I think, 17 episodes or 16 episodes. Normally, we do 25 or 24. You're like, yeah, I only did 16 or 17. And now there's other people being like, we did a limited series and it was six episodes. I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) You're like... Bitch, I mean, on set for like, <laughs> what was it like to get on, on that first day back on set? How did it, how did it affect your rhythms as a, you know, as a part of a cast and a performer and someone who has a huge control in the show? Well, it definitely wasn't as fun. You know, set is all about trying to create a vibe, especially doing a show for as long as we've been doing Grays. It's really all about morale and trying to keep everybody happy and excited and in a positive way and bring ideas to the set and what can we do? How can we make the scene better? And creating that camaraderie is really crucial to a show that's running this long. And it was really hard during COVID because you can't be on set at the same time. You know, the actors can't, we can't hang out on set. We sort of have to come in in our hazmat suits say our dialogue, can't really hear each other. You have to wear earwigs and um, sort of do, it was like doing, filming an astronaut show for like six months because we're all, you know, and then I was, of course, in a coma most of the series. You were in a coma. I was in a coma. So is that, this could be taken the wrong way. Was that relaxing? Disclaimer, not being in an actual coma. Well, part of the reason behind doing it was we had this idea to like do the scenes on the beach in a dream state so that we could be outside and shoot outside. And I have asthma 
And I think the idea of getting COVID was, you know, pretty frightening for people with asthma before the vaccine. So it was a way to mitigate my time on set and to keep me offset as much as possible. So they made this doll. Tell me about the doll. Come on. Oh, my goodness. Tell me about the Meredith Grey Coma doll. It is the most claustrophobic, panic-inducing. They just paint this latex all over your face. I mean, most actors have had to endure this at one time or another. And it's in, it's a really terrifying, horrible 45 minutes of just painting layers of latex on you. With nose holes. And then on top of that, they put like this paper mache and then that has to dry and then they have to cut it off. I brought my daughter with me and I held her hand the whole entire time. So I knew that she would really keep me calm and I knew that I would be okay as long as I was holding her hand. Because you can't see, you can't hear, they block your ears. It's just the two little nose holes. And of course you're thinking like, oh, is there going to be an earthquake? Like, what's going to happen, you know? In LA? Yeah. (laughs) Next time you do that, honey, do it in New York. (laughs) (laughs) How was the likeness of Kermit? Well... What's interesting about it is the material sort of degrades for whatever reason. So does ours. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. True to life. <laughs> whatever that latex is or whatever that thing is, it over time uh, with the hot lights or something, I'm not really sure, but it starts to deteriorate so much so that at the end of the season, I had to lay on a bed and they had to shoot my face, like take pictures of my face so they could sort of lay it on top of you know, because the face had somehow changed. But I kept complaining about the hair. Yeah, this wig is not going to do. You need to get my hair people. I finally had to convince them to have my LA hair people come in and dye the wig and cut it so that at least the hair can be somewhat of this century. Yeah, like she has, she has her pride. She may not be conscious, but she has her Now, if you, wait, to continue with this doll trip for a second, if you could... Have your own doll that could sub for you. Where would you send this doll? It is a lifelike Ellen Pompeo who could just <laughs> go to do things that you wouldn't want. Um, <laughs> well, at 50, you don't do anything you don't want to do. No, don't tell <laughs> sure. my kids that. No. <laughs> Wheel along a red carpet like Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. <laughs> you could have one at home if you just like, you know, you're tired or you're tired of being in the same room with your husband, Chris, you could just put the doll in. <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot quieter. I'm sure Chris wouldn't mind that at all. He'd actually maybe, probably love that. Maybe he's got it in the garage. Uh, I doubt it. So, okay, season 18, what, what's going to happen after that? We put the doll in. <laughs> I mean, she's very charismatic. I'm curious because you are the, you know, the lady on, on Grey. So when young cast members come, do you make extra effort to make them feel welcome? Or what's kind of your ritual with people who are new to that, for, you know, from you who's done it for 17 seasons? Sure. I definitely try to make them feel welcome and have a coffee with them or a tea or have a walk or, you know, I try to keep my relationships with everybody on the show, whether they're new or not. Um, I think it's important to have a real chemistry among the cast and that's something that we all really had in the beginning. And uh, and that's something that's more difficult to maintain, especially during COVID this year. Um, and it's when you lose people off the show, it's just the chemistry really goes because you just don't have those connections with. What do you, what do you miss about the early days? Oh, the people. I mean, the, 
The actors now are great too, but it, during the early days, we all really had something. It was so exciting because, you know, none of us had ever had that sort of level of recognition before. And Sandra Oh was quite successful, I think, and, and Patrick also was very successful. So they had experienced some level of that. And Catherine Heigl had been working her whole life. She, you know, she was an, a, a child actress and had a wealth of experience. We had a lot of fun back then. What was it like to suddenly face all of that exposure at once when you hadn't had it to that degree? It was probably different for everybody. And thank God we didn't have social media back then. I mean, I can't imagine what people go through now. We did have paparazzi. And back then, paparazzi was on a different level because that's all we had, right? You know, they'd do 30 of them, 40 of them everywhere people went back in the day. So that was its own thing. But I think it was a lot of competition, people trying to figure it out, trying to navigate. We all had a great chemistry with each other and had a lot of laughs, but there were definitely moments where we had fights with each other, where we'd inevitably hurt someone's feelings or be in a bad mood. And I've spoken about this before. The sheer hours of network television for the crew and the cast, it was very, very common back in the day to do a 16, 17-hour day. And the level of exhaustion plus the pressure that's on actors on a network show is really not okay and lends itself to enormous problems. You're exhausted, you're cranky, you're tired, you're stressed out. So I think everyone on the show was a really amazing actor and super professional and really cared immensely about what they did. The sheer exhaustion of our workload and the added pressure of the fame and attention and criticism on all of us, I think, contributed to a lot of things that people were criticized for that weren't really any of our fault, really. They were just outside circumstances. Humans can take so much. You know what I mean? So how have you managed that or, or managed to give that, have greater control over that uh, through the seasons on the show for your, you know, for not, obviously the cast well-being, but for yours particularly? I always just try to just take a beat, you know, and don't act impulsively and just take a beat. But I've done plenty of things wrong and I've pissed plenty of people off and I've had fights and I'm by no means perfect. It's all part of the human experience, but I, I definitely try to learn from every time I'm not proud of the way I behaved or proud of a situation or, you know, I definitely try to learn from it and not make the same mistake twice. And as, you know, as your power has grown, there's, there's a producer of the show, there's a showrunner of the show, but you are, you know, in, in, in what way pe people visibly see. How have you sort of cons consolidated that now when you have done this for a long time? I know we covered this when we did this great story on your Insta a few years ago, but how important it was to, to you to be frank about telling people how you got paid, what you were worth, and uh, and how long, you know, it took you to get sort of build up that like ownership of yourself? Well, it's interesting because that article wasn't sort of... It was a Hollywood Reporter, right? The original one? Yeah, it was Lacey Rose, Hollywood Reporter. And um, she won awards for that article, I think. She's fantastic at what she does. But it just was a genuine conversation. Like, I didn't necessarily know, okay, we're going to talk about how much money you make and we're going to do this. It really just seemed like an organically 
generated conversation, you know, about my experience. And it, it turned into something that I certainly didn't really realize. You didn't go in being like, I'm going to do a public service today. Yeah, like it wasn't <laughs> like, I'm going to do this big article and talk about how much, not at all. It was like, Hollywood Reporter wants to do a profile on you. And I was like, oh, how nice. Okay, great. I really just thought it was a profile on my career up to that point. And the fact that I had taken this unusual journey of staying on a network show for so long, because it's not the path that most people take. Most people are dying to get off and do other things. And it's unusual for someone to stay on a show for so long. But to be so pragmatic and so certain about, and I guess I'm, I'm sure at the time you heard from a, a ton of women being like, damn, you know, somebody's actually speaking about making that choice and speaking about wanting to have a life and take care of a family and still work. The received wisdom for a minute was like, you spoke about stuff, Michelle Williams spoke about stuff, and and then it was going to be all fixed. It's still happening. Oh, of course it is. And it's still happening to Black women and Latina women. Of course. It is. And it, part of what's challenging and, and where I had the leverage was I can very specifically quantify exactly what my worth is based on what Grey's Anatomy has generated. Right. And so if you cannot show them a piece of paper that says, I've starred in these 16 movies or these 16 shows, and they have all generated, collectively generated this much money with me as the lead and my voice as the voiceover... If you can't do that, how do you prove that you deserve that money? You can think you're worth something, but you also have to be able to back that up with real hard numbers and show that you're able to generate money. No one really gives a fuck what you think you're worth. It's what do you generate? How much money does your voice and your your face generate? That's the question. That's a learning that I'm sure you developed through the years. What would you say to to a, a, a young woman or whatever who sort of maybe start not necessarily starting out on a network show, but to what would be your advice? Like to see to find a way to quantify yourself in some way. I don't know. You gotta somehow have some sort of data. You know, data or data, however you say it. These people in business affairs who who run these numbers and who decide what people will be paid. They don't run from a place like actors are emotional, right? And have a lot of emotional capacity. People who work in business affairs and lawyers don't. Not that they're not emotional, but they, they don't operate from that place. You have to speak a different language. And they just simply look at number columns. And how much do, money do we have? How much money does this person want? How, how many other people do we have to pay? It's really just like an equation to them. So if the numbers make sense to them, then you get your dollars. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, 
their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Ladies First with me, Laura Brown. This week, my guest is Ellen Pompeo, who will probably start yelling at me, um, because that's what we do. What are you the most confident in professionally, and what are you the least? I can see people now in in a work environment and really see how they're performing. I know how sets run, and I know when someone is burnt out. I know when someone is afraid to speak up. I know when someone is bored and not contributing. I know when a director's phoning it in. That sort of thing. I I can see people's behavior pretty clearly. And then I would say I'm the least confident in the business side of things. I'm starting to invest in a lot of businesses and really just move into other areas and I think, you know, that I'm the least confident in that because I have no experience. No, it's so overwhelming. Yeah. I'm going to do a podcast like you. Yes. And I've never done that before. It's called Tell Me. And they will. When's that going to start? I'm going to start recording in August. I said, do people really need to hear me talk more? Don't I talk enough? Yeah, the, people love you. could narrate our lives. You were like, you were like the, the younger, blonder Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I think... Sort of as a theme, if we listen to each other more, maybe we could learn from each other. So that's where the tell me comes in. They had been after me for a while, a lot of different companies to do a podcast. I was like, people don't need more of me. I'm There's too much of me already. But then I thought, you know what? It's interesting because I did this other interview where a woman had said to me, so now that you've been doing the show for 17 years and, you know, do you see yourself as like in this box. And I thought, thank you so much. That was such a lovely, lovely question of you to ask me. So genuine and nice, no salt thrown at my eyes at all. But I said to her, I answered her and I said, you know, when I was in my thirties, I absolutely saw myself as in a box. And that's why I stayed on the show because I said, holy shit, by the time I can negotiate my contract again and get out of this, I'm going to be almost 40 years old. And I'm super typecast in this role. I'm 40, so I'm never going to work again, imagine. Even 15 years ago, the thought of being 40 was like you're over as an actress. So I said to her when I was 30s, I I definitely would have seen myself as as in a box. But now that I'm 50, I, I don't see myself that way at all. I think of myself that I can do whatever I want, or I could do nothing at all, quite honestly. You could rest on your laurels very easily, and you don't. So I thought, to set an example for other women who think this way, let me go out there and do something that I've never done before and try something completely different for absolutely no other reason than just to try something different because I haven't for so long. So if it fails, it fails, but at least I'm trying something new. You've been on this show for as long as you have, but you've you've existed in so many different realms and you've been ambitious and curious about different things and outspoken on different things. And um, 
what are you ambitious for? Because again, you could be a big old laurel rester. You could just kick back on that lovely leather chair and eat bonbons. But what are you ambitious for now? Well, I have a couple of really exciting things that I'm working on that I'm not quite ready to speak about yet, but I'm I'm definitely working on my next chapter, so to speak. Give me a hypothetical. At some point, you will do something else other than Grey's Anatomy. I, I don't know that it's sitting in a trailer watching myself on screen. I'm not saying I, I would never act again. I, I very well may. But I, I, I'm not super excited about continuing my acting career. I'm, I'm more entrepreneurial at this stage, and I'm excited about investing in businesses and starting businesses. And that's a, an area of growth that I'm excited about using my brain in a different way. The acting, I feel like, even though I haven't done a million different roles, I feel like I've done it. Sitting around in trailers and traveling around and going shooting this in Atlanta and shooting that in Vancouver. And I have no desire to go sit in trailers at 11 o'clock at night and wait to shoot scenes and have ADs knock on my door and tell me when I can eat lunch. And <laughs> you know, it's for the young at heart. It's for the youth. At least you got to do some nice dream sequences in Malibu with the, you know, mixed steams and McDreams. Yeah, that was so fun. That was so fun. What was that like? Did you run slowly toward each other on the beach? I mean, I have the best relationship with pretty much all of the original cast. Not everybody, but I really stay in touch with a lot of them. And we just have the best time. I just love them. There's like a deep affection I have for that original cast because we went through something that only a few people can relate to. Because you were babies. Yeah, we were babies and we all experienced something magical together. And the fact that I've been able to sort of carry the torch this long and bring it to sort of iconic status. And it's it's been, you know, a really remarkable journey. I don't know that people get into acting when they're younger with the idea that they're going to touch people and move people. I mean, you, you have a lot of angst and you have a lot of emotions and you need to express it and you need an outlet and you need to put your creativity somewhere. And, you know, you, you want to tell stories and touch people. That might be a little bit of what people think about when they decide they want to go into a career in acting. But to have had this amount of impact on masses and masses of people um, is really a gift that I didn't see coming. Your fans are everywhere. What has been your most particular like fan encounter like over the years that you've just gone like, oh damn, or or the most sincere or the most meaningful or or the or the weirdest? <laughs> The most meaningful is really these young girls. And that's also part of the impetus for the podcast too, is like, I really want to have meaningful conversations to teach them things. I want them to be able to listen to the podcast and learn things because that is what I hear that I've learned so much from Gray's. I've learned so much from your interviews. I've learned so much from your podcast appearances. So I want to continue on that path. I want to continue having an impact on young women in a positive way if I can. I've been given the privilege of this platform. I want to continue that. And then the weirdest things are just, you know, haters, people who are so filled with hate and they just have this, you know, this anger and this vitriol for people they don't know and their energy would be so much better spent if they just worked on themselves. One more question of this, and then we're going to do this thing called 10 Firsts, okay? Hang on, do your kids watch Grey's? No. <laughs> no. Stella is my oldest, and she's 11, and she is not allowed to watch it yet, but she does have some 
older friends and they have seen it. So they talk about it, I'm sure, or, you know, but she just thinks it's embarrassing, you know. Keep that shame going. Okay, ready? It's called 10 Firsts and it's just 10 things that mean nothing. Okay, ready? I know probably know the answer. Actually, I don't know the answer to this one. First drink you order. Tequila. What sort? All different kinds. Right now, I'm really into rosé tequila, but I'm not endorsing anybody's tequila. I like to sample all the brands and taste it, but I have tequila with a little bit of lime juice. I've never had rosé tequila. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay, I'm coming over. All right, ready? <laughs> I'm going to teleport. First thing you look, on, look at on your phone in the morning? My texts and my emails. That's pretty sexy. First time you thought you'd achieve true success? When I was on the Oprah show. What year was that? What did she ask you? What did you wear? Who the hell knows? It was really interesting. It ended up being a conversation about race. And I really had no idea that that's what the conversation was going to be about. And then my husband was in the audience and they put the camera on him. I think I was too excited about the whole experience. And I didn't really realize that the topic was going to be about sort of the racial component of the show and how I'm in a marriage with a biracial person. And it it sort of turned out to be something I didn't expect, but it was fun. It was the only time I've ever been to Chicago. It was absolutely freezing. I remember that. And I just remember Oprah having the most electric energy of any person I had ever felt. And then I would meet Barack Obama years later at her estate in Montecito. And I thought, oh, these two have a just an electricity about them. Did you ever get a hug out of her? Did she hug you after being on that show? Yes. That thing, that hug could like fuel like a jet. She's warm and like, you're like, oh, and then you just want to like, don't let me go. And then she's probably like, okay, freak. She's anyway. definitely vibrating on a, a very high, high frequency you know, super intelligent, high frequency, you know, the aliens probably call her on a nightly. <laughs> She's like up there. She is buzzing. They're going to call into your podcast. Okay. First person you call. Oh, it depends on what I have to say. There is not just one person. Do you call Chris a lot when you're like not around or do you just sort of text or? Yes. Yes. Whether he picks up or not is a different story, but yes. How long have you been married for now? Oh goodness. I can't, I don't remember and don't tell him that I don't remember because he'll get so mad because he gets so <laughs> mad when I don't remember these things. Hold on, wait a second. Because he literally knows like every minute, every hour. Wait, it was 2007. It was November 11th, day after my birthday, 2007. And then Stella was born in 2009. And when did you first meet? We met in 2002. In a Whole Foods? Yes, in a Whole Foods. It was about six months before I did the pilot to Grey's Anatomy. Oh, he's saying some Poor guy. stuff. <laughs> he had no idea what he was getting into. I remember in the beginning, it was really hard for him. He was like, "What? this is not what I signed up for. You're kissing a guy. on. You go to work and like make out with that. I like, I like Patrick and everything. He's a good dude, but like, really? <laughs> what? You actresses are nuts. Like, well, I'm supposed to put up with this? 
And then there's all these guys hanging outside the house with cameras. It was a lot for him at first. He was really a trooper, I have to say. He is my favorite person. He's heading up on my favorite person list. I'm, d- I'm some- dumping some people and he's just going to go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> first thing that made you laugh when you were a kid, what, what, what was like the funny thing for you? Or now? I would say my kids make me laugh. They're just hilarious. Sienna said something the other day. She said, Mom, I'm a woman. <laughs> She's six. Sienna's a little firecracker. She is hilarious. And you should say to her, if you're a woman, you can go get a job. Yeah, exactly. Job. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm tired. I'm tired. Okay, first, fashion splurge. That's tough because even when I was living in Boston and sort of bartending and waitressing, I would mm-hmm. always go, you know, we had... Do you remember Lomans? You're from Australia. Sure. So, so we had, no, I we, we had a store called Lomans. And Lomans used to be fabulous back in the day. You could go get any designer. It was like fabulous then. And Lan Van and Calvin Klein and all of it. Gucci. Like I was a kid in the 70s. So like all the ladies, my stepmother, they were fabulous. Gucci had to toe with the giant glasses and the fur coats. We hate fur coats, but... Yeah, at the time, it was an archetype. Yeah, yeah. They used to drive those big Lincoln Continental <laughs> cars and wear the red fox coats and, you know, fabulous. The outfits in the in the late 70s and early 80s were just everything. Did you watch Halston? I sure did. Get it, sassy. And you would kill in a Halston look. Oh, you're made for that. Do you have any? I could see you in a little one-shoulder swish. I don't. You know, it's funny. I was into vintage for a while back when I first started working on Grays or when I first started working and doing movies when I did Catch Me If You Can and a couple other movies. I always would wear vintage to the premieres. But then you sort of get hip to, well, you're not going to wear it again. And now you own this vintage piece and you spent all this money on it. You can't really wear it again. I mean, you can, but... So I kind of got off that track. What was the last thing you bought that you loved? Ooh, the last thing I bought that I loved is a Valentino jeans. I bought a nice summer weight, really pretty, like bright blue wash for the summer of uh, Valentino jeans. And I bought a beautiful pair of the row a nice white trouser for the summer. Oh, look at you. I can see you swanning around the East Coast in those. And I will. Okay, first time you owned your shit. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. See, that's the bad thing about 50. You can't remember a fucking thing. I try to own my shit all the time, you know? And even if I didn't own my shit at the time, if I've had differences with people, if I have the opportunity to let them know that I wish things could have been done differently or I always try to really be vulnerable with people and let them know that I I, I didn't handle that properly or I could have handled that better. I think that's like important when you're famous to try to, you know, be very, very vulnerable with people and honest. I would say what I'm trying to learn how to do is set boundaries without, because you don't always have to forgive people. If people have been really bad to you consistently, you don't always have to forgive people. And I always feel like some people say I'm too nice. You know, I'm I'm a firecracker, right? I'm like, I have this super 
tough exterior and then I'm like soft and gooey on the inside. I never want to make anybody mad. I never want to offend anybody. But I'm really trying to learn a a boundary. Like just because you don't want to deal with someone or talk to someone doesn't mean you're mean. It just means you're setting a boundary for yourself. And And I felt like I always had to forgive people. And I'm trying to find my way through that right now. Oh, it is a hard thing to learn, especially if you just kind of want everybody to get on and you want it to be, it's oftentimes a harder choice to make because you want to keep trying, you can make some things work or if there's a conflict or whatever, you want to just be nice to be nice. Then like, it's not good for you to do that when you could just sort of remove, you know? I read something on Instagram that said, you know, just because you're setting a boundary doesn't mean you're holding a grudge. And I guess that what is what I always felt like if I didn't make up with someone then it meant that I'm holding a grudge and and I'm trying to find my way to setting a boundary does not mean you're holding a grudge. Okay, first date. Ooh, my first date. Don't remember that either. <laughs> okay, your first date with Chris then. Oh, well, that's an interesting story because my first date with Chris, you know, wasn't technically a date because we we were just friends, right? But our first date uh, really, the first time we went out was we went to Matsuhisa for sushi, and then we went to a basketball game, we went to a, cl- a Clipper game. Where you two have been photographed in many years since. Yeah, I'm very inspired by athletes. I really love athletes. The sports that I love are tennis and basketball, and and, and I was like, you know, hugely, hugely inspired by the tenacity of athletes, like. Kobe, LeBron, like just they face so much pressure, so much backlash, and they have to get out there to perform and do their best every night anyway. They have to take the hits. They they get to celebrate their wins. They're very inspirational to me. What do you think of Naomi Osaka uh, pulling herself out of the French Open? I think that institutions like the French Open, who have been around since the beginning of time, I think you need to modernize in some ways. And if a young person is telling you that the press is causing me anxiety and affecting the way I'm going to perform or affecting the way I feel, I think it's okay to step up and be a little modern and say, she's not interested in doing it right now. And that's okay. She's still going to perform in the match. She's going to do what she does. And she should absolutely be allowed to be able to say, I don't want to do that. And these institutions have to realize that these young people do have a tremendous amount of anxiety. The social media, the press, everything is magnified. Everything is picked apart. Everything she says is a clickbait or a headline. Of course, people have anxiety. And if if she doesn't want to participate in that, good for her for standing up and in, in, in setting her boundary. And she's always been an extraordinary example of sportsmanship. And she has led an extraordinary example her whole entire career. It speaks back to you you're talking about being younger and, and being on a set and for 17 hours a day and not having the, the capacity to, to necessarily function in all the ways that people expect you to do. Okay, first thing you turn on TV. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I'm obsessed with like reality shows. I I watch very little scripted TV because I'm so critical of it. 90 Day Fiance is just the most absurd, ridiculous show that I can't believe people participate in. And it's kind of like watching a train wreck and I can't stop. What do you eat if you're stressed out? Oh, I don't eat when I'm stressed. Okay, what do you eat when you're relaxing? I'll literally sit and eat a whole entire watermelon. 
I love dark chocolate. I'm a big, like, dark chocolate person. And I'm very specific about, like, I like those lint. It's Swiss chocolate. There's something about the texture. Love it. All I want for you. Tell me. Ellen Pompeo. Tell me. Is just to always have access to that flat, dark chocolate bar. (laughs) With the choices you've made, the people you choose to surround yourself by, the way you speak up, the way sometimes you don't the way you take care of yourself, the way you organically look out for other people before it was the thing. When you spoke your mind before people, more people did it. So I'm an admirer of that, my dear girl. Thank you. That's why you're a first lady. (laughs) I'll throw it right back at you. So thanks to everything that you do too. Glad you could join me and Ellen Pompeo. This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us so you don't miss an episode. And we love your feedback. If you could please rate us and leave us a review. Oh, we'd love it. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. You can find out more at InStyle.com and find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at LauraBrown99.